When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. He was the definition of prolific. In his lifetime, American expatriate John Singer Sargent created countless sketches and charcoal drawings, over 2,000 watercolor paintings, and 900 oil paintings. His ability to draw with a brush brought him both admiration and criticism. And he was as versatile as he was talented. His landscapes touched on Impressionism, while his other works blended realism, classicism, and grand manner portraiture. Sargent's novelist friend, Henry James, said he offered the slightly uncanny spectacle of a talent which, on the threshold of its career, has nothing more to learn. He was famous, sure, but so were his subjects. Henry James, Robert Louis Stevenson, President Franklin Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and Lady Agnew, just to name a few. But his most famous painting ended in scandal, nearly ruining him and his muse. Virginie Amélie Avenio, born in New Orleans in 1859 to exceptionally wealthy parents, spent most of her life in Paris. She wore the finest of dresses and was taught to be a proper young woman. Like most in her social class, she was expected to marry into wealth. But her elegance, beauty, and figure did more than turn heads. They started rumors of loose behavior. She ignored the rumors, and soon married a wealthy banker, Pierre Gatreau. Not long after, the couple welcomed daughter Louise in 1879. None of that stopped the rumors, though, and word of her affairs made for frequent gossip among the elite. In 1884, Sargent was a young artist making a name for himself. He needed a model worthy of painting for the Paris Salon, the annual art exhibition hosting some of the finest talents in the world he knew he'd found the right muse the minute he met Gatreau. She agreed to sit for him, though she had little patience or discipline for such things. Constantly distracted with social engagements, she complained that the process bored her. Sargent became equally frustrated with the endless breaks and interruptions, though he finally finished the life-size portrait in time for the 1884 Paris Salon. He had painted Gatreau's skin a pale white, typical of aristocratic pallor. The profile of her face gave the impression of assertiveness. Her floor-length, deep black gown was cinched at the waist with a plunging heart neckline that was rather daring for the time, and sleeveless but for a pair of thin, jeweled shoulder straps, one of which had slipped to hang loosely over her right arm. Both he and Gatreau were pleased with the result. The public, however, was not. The pose and attire were overtly sexual for the time and brought instant scandal. An aristocrat, 
posing for such an erotic painting, quickly became the talk of Paris. Because his depiction defied societal norms, Sargent found work scarce in France after the exhibit, even after he repainted the draping strap to sit firmly on Gatreau's shoulder. At the urging of his friends, he moved to England and quickly became a success painting the most elite in British and American society. Gatreau's reputation took a bit longer to restore, though. She hired two different artists to paint her in more conservative clothing and demure poses. While she was eventually welcomed back into elite society, she never regained the status she once held. Society had expectations, after all. As it turned out, those expectations were rarely consistent. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. John Pollard returned from a trip with a bad cold. Five days later, he died. 12-year-old Madeline took the loss hard, not just because she'd been her father's favorite, but because that day in 1876, she lost her family as she'd always known it. They owned no property, and despite her father's profession as a lawyer, he left no estate to speak of. Her mother couldn't provide for six children, so she did what many women were forced to do in such circumstances. She sent the children to live elsewhere. Edward, the oldest, found employment and left to fend for himself. Madeline's older sister Mary and the baby, Ernest, went to live with an aunt. Rosalie, John, and Horatio were sent to an orphanage in Louisville. John's sister in Pittsburgh took Madeline, though she and her husband already had six children of their own. Madeline threw herself into her schoolwork to lessen the pain. Teachers said she was well-behaved and attentive. But seven children to feed and clothe proved hard, and so when she turned 16, her aunt sent her back to her mother. It didn't last long, though. Her mother sent her away once more, this time to another family member in Lexington. Madeline wanted to pursue her education. She didn't want to end up without skills like her mother. Without money, though, even returning to school seemed out of the question. Jobs and pay for women were limited, and young ladies were groomed to become wives, not scholars. While out riding one day, she came across James Rhodes. He was a friend of her uncle's, a much older man with an ashen complexion telling of his age and hard life. He asked her to marry him, and she declined. He persisted, though, telling her he'd pay for her education if she accepted. Madeline wanted to become a writer. Rhodes expected her to become a teacher upon her return, and, of course, take care of him in his old age. Feeling that this might be her only option, and thinking she could either repay him or outlive him, she reluctantly agreed. In 1883, at 17, she went to study at the Notre Dame convent. When the other girls heard she'd made an agreement to marry a man old enough to be her grandfather, they were less than kind, forcing her to transfer to Wesleyan Female College in Cincinnati. She wrote in her journal that she felt she'd die of pain thinking of her impending marriage to the lecherous Rhodes, and that somehow she had to get herself out from under such a deal. The arrangement weighed heavily on her mind, even when she received a telegram informing her that her sister Rosalie had fallen ill with consumption. 
After boarding the last train home, a man approached her, asking if they'd ever met before. Though she doubted such a meeting had ever taken place, she recognized him instantly, Colonel William Campbell Preston Breckenridge. Her father had spoken highly of him, and young Madeline had idolized Breckenridge almost as much as she had her father. Twenty years her senior, he was the son of a prominent minister, grandson of a senator, and first cousin to Vice President John Breckinridge. He had his own political aspirations and currently served as a member of the House of Representatives. He also lived in Lexington and was returning home. Madeline was enthralled. On the trip home, the two talked about their family. His first wife had died and he had remarried. He and his wife, Issa, had three children. She told him about her father and education. She listened intently as he talked about his law practice and his stance on civil rights. Occasionally, he took cases defending freed black men. As a minister's son, he dedicated himself to preserving family values and morals. For a short time after the Civil War, he had even held a job Madeline could only dream of, the editor of the Lexington Observer. The two parted ways after that. Madeline stayed in Kentucky until her sister's death and funeral. The meeting with her idol had made a deep impression, though, and once she returned to school, she talked quite a bit about meeting Breckenridge. Sensing a crush, her classmates kidded her, often addressing her as Madeline Vivian Breckenridge Pollard. Once she'd settled back into her studies, letters from Rhodes poured in. In his mind, she'd been away at school long enough and the time had come for her to either repay him or marry him. Thinking Breckenridge might offer her legal advice, she wrote to him, explaining her situation. He not only replied, he also offered to meet her while in Cincinnati on business. He arrived not long after and asked if she'd like to attend a concert with him. They could discuss her situation beforehand. She quickly agreed. He didn't take her to the concert hall, however. Instead, he brought her to a remote location where he attempted to kiss her. She resisted, and he took her back to the school. Before he left, he pressed $10 into her hand. Though bewildered, she took the money. He then told her why his conduct that evening had not been improper. It's not clear what, if anything, she said in response. One thing is clear, though. They briefly discussed her deal with Rhodes. If she wanted to know how to resolve the situation, she would need to meet him at the public library the next morning. Though he hadn't acted exactly like a husband and gentleman, she thought maybe he had misunderstood her, too. Thinking about Rhodes again gave her all the courage she needed. Breckenridge was a powerful man, a lawyer, and he was still her idol. So she agreed to meet with him the next morning. He was waiting for her when she arrived, but they didn't go inside to talk. There was a change of plans, he told her. They could speak more openly at a friend's home. Thinking of who might overhear her story, she left with him. They were welcomed inside and sat in the parlor. Not long after they arrived, a woman entered, informing him that the upstairs room was ready. Madeline refused. Breckenridge made her another offer transfer to Sayre Institute in Lexington, and he'd take care of Rhodes. She could live in a small cottage instead of a dormitory, all expenses paid, of course. 
Clearly, he was offering the same deal she had made with Rhodes, only with a more comfortable residence and without the marriage. She'd be his mistress in exchange for her studies. Once she finished school, she would be free to live her life. She considered her options, and, having some attraction to Breckenridge, decided to accept. He made good on his word, and she made good on hers. Over the next few months, he visited her frequently, and by the summer of 1884, she was pregnant. She did her best to conceal the pregnancy while at school, lasting until February of 1885. Breckenridge paid for her to return to Cincinnati and the Norwood Foundling Asylum. Asylums at the time housed not only people considered to have mental illnesses, but other illnesses as well, and women who had fallen from society. Fallen meaning they'd become pregnant out of wedlock. Breckenridge had her registered as Louise Wilson to protect her reputation, but was more likely protecting his own. On May 29th, with only two midwives by her side, she gave birth to a baby girl. Having spent months alone without so much as a visit from Breckenridge, Madeline decided to give up the child and break off the affair. With his reputation to protect, it wasn't like he could demand she repay him. He wrote back begging her not to leave. He swore that he loved her and that if she'd give up the child, and if he were ever free from his marriage, he would marry her. He swore he'd protect her and properly take care of their future children. He told her that if she ended the relationship, any chance of finishing her education would be lost. Without higher education, she wouldn't be able to support herself. As a woman, her opportunities were few. He wasn't wrong. She could be a cook, maid, or seamstress, but none of those jobs paid enough to support oneself. There were factory jobs, but the pay wasn't much better, and working conditions were often deplorable. Teachers earned the most, but still not enough money to live on their own. Breckenridge wrote more letters professing his love. She believed him and returned to Kentucky to finish her studies. The affair picked up where it had left off, except this time she felt he would eventually marry her. She wrote in her journal that had won her love and that she remained faithful to him, obedient in all ways. Though he kept her in the shadows, she told herself that he treated her well and that she wanted for nothing except to end the secrecy. She often lamented that they could not be together. He told her that as a man of faith and God, he could never leave his wife. He told her to be patient, that whenever his wife died, he would marry her. Now, one could argue that Madeline had to know that at this point, he wasn't a man of moral standing and that he might be asking her to wait decades, perhaps the rest of her life. Yet, she agreed. Madeline became pregnant again in 1887. This time, Breckenridge moved her to Washington, D.C. In February of 1888, she gave birth to a son. The only person by her side was the midwife hired to care for her. Once again, she gave up the child. He wrote her a letter afterward, telling her to hold on, that one day they'd marry. When his political career took him to Washington, he visited her often, but still kept her a secret. When he returned home, she made friends with the wives of several politicians. Years passed with him visiting her frequently. Then, in 1892, Issa Breckenridge died. Madeline had waited eight years for this. 
the time had come for her turn to be his wife. Of course, he assured her that they had announced the engagement after a short and proper mourning period. When June of 1893 arrived, Madeline grew tired of waiting. Breckenridge reminded her that in polite society, he was still in mourning. For weeks, the two argued. In the end, he asked her to be patient just a little while longer, and she relented. In July, Madeline visited her friend Julia Churchill Blackburn. As the wife of a former governor, Julia was part of an elite circle. Madeline was excited she'd be included among the Washington elite once she was married. She couldn't refrain from telling Julia and a few other friends. When a reporter for the Washington Post heard about the engagement, Madeline thought she needed to make a formal announcement before the press discovered the trail of Breckenridge's visits while he'd still been married. That's when the next telegram arrived. Not to her, but to the press. Breckenridge had heard about the reporter's intent to publish their engagement and was denying any involvement with her. Furious, Madeline wrote him a scathing letter and waited for his response. His reply didn't arrive by telegram or letter, though. She read it in the paper the next day. Breckenridge had announced his engagement to Kentucky socialite Louise Scott Wing. It was a short engagement. He married his new fiance two days later. The truth stung Madeline. He had never truly intended to marry her. She'd been a mistress and meant nothing more than that. Now in her mid-twenties, she felt she'd given up her youth. Society looked upon mistresses as fallen and ruined women. The opportunity to marry with dignity was gone, as was her reputation. Women in her situation had no recourse except to fade away. Anything they said would be construed as bitter. In the eyes of society, certain women were predators out to prey on good men. People would point at her and talk behind her back. To her face, they'd tell her she'd gotten what she deserved. That part was true enough. She was partly at fault and would accept the consequences. But Breckenridge was going to take his share in the mess, too. And Madeline knew exactly how to do it. Things were about to get ugly. It happened over a meal. Breckenridge and his new bride were enjoying dinner at the Cochrane Hotel in D.C. on August 12th of 1893, when an aide from the U.S. Marshal's office walked up to their table. After confirming Breckenridge's identity, he introduced himself and handed over an envelope full of legal papers. Acting as though it were nothing, the colonel showed the papers to his wife. Madeline was suing him for breach of promise to the tune of $50,000. Today, that'd be a cool one and a half million. Such lawsuits weren't uncommon then. You see, without jobs or pay that could equal a male counterpart, a woman's primary job was to marry. It was drilled into her from childhood to become a proper wife, hopefully to a wealthy suitor who could best care for her and their children. But with these lawsuits came scandal. Society and juries alike assumed that such cases happened because the woman ruined herself before marriage. Ruined meaning that she was no longer chaste. While men were expected to have premarital relations, women were not. Instead of going off into the shadows, 
Madeline admitted to having a nine-year affair with Breckenridge, starting when she was 17. She argued that he took advantage of her youth and promised her marriage. In return, he painted her as a willful predator. She had boldly seduced him. Not long afterward, it had become clear to him that she was out for his money and status. She'd done this before, he later told the press. In fact, he'd been tricked into rescuing her from a similar situation. Therefore, he couldn't have ruined her. She was already ruined, and hardly the marrying kind. While the major newspapers didn't carry Madeline's reply, small upstarts did. 600,000 people opened the Sunday edition of the World Tabloid to read her side of the story. She put the details of their entire affair out into the open. Breckenridge, a married man who claimed to uphold morality, had seduced her. He'd fathered two children and kept her and the pregnancies a secret from his wife and children at home. Without a job or financial support, she couldn't keep her children, and Breckenridge wanted nothing to do with them. Illegitimate children were a hot topic in the late 1800s, with cases of abandoned and murdered newborns on the rise. In September, Madeline moved into a house of mercy for fallen women, where she told the press about her plans to devote her life to charity. Living with nuns and doing charity work didn't exactly come across as a woman out for money. Breckenridge continued to say that she was a bitter, scorned woman. Madeline spun it differently, though. She wanted to shed light on the reason why women became ruined in the first place, double standards. A month later, Breckenridge had a friend send his secretary to gain Madeline's confidence in the hopes she'd say or do something he could use against her. The plan failed. Madeline refused to discuss the matter. On February 9th of 1894, Madeline and her attorney, Calderon Carlyle, arrived at the courthouse for depositions. No one knew where the money came from to pay such a high-profile lawyer, or even why he'd taken on such a case. And frankly, no one thought the case would go to trial when the city hall doors opened on March 8th of 1894. Breckenridge had tried to settle out of court, but Madeline held firm that if she were going to be publicly humiliated and scorned for her actions, he deserved the heat as well. The courtroom was packed with spectators, members of Congress, some well-known actors, and the press. When Breckenridge told the courtroom that he hardly knew Madeline, Carlyle presented a stack of love letters and telegrams dating back nine years that told otherwise. Changing tactics, Breckenridge's lawyers insisted their client had felt trapped in the relationship and feared blackmail, that he was not a willing participant. Carlyle called upon several witnesses, including the women who had attended Madeline's first birth. He'd certainly been willing enough, the lawyer pointed out. Breckenridge questioned the patrimony of the child, but with a nine-year affair and a second child, no one was buying his story. Meanwhile, poor Louise was having a breakdown. Everything Breckenridge had presented himself to be was unraveling. She began to question what really had transpired between her husband and Madeline. Humiliated and hurt, she became physically ill. Over the next several days, Carlyle presented a steady stream of witnesses. One of the most prominent was Julia Blackburn. She had witnessed Breckenridge with Madeline not long before his engagement announcement to Louise. 
When all the witnesses had given their testimony, the defense realized they were in trouble of losing what should have been an easy case. Women rarely won a breach of promise suit, especially ones against married men. The case didn't look much better in the public eye, either. The testimony, coupled with the tabloid article, didn't favor their client. He certainly wasn't the family man with upstanding morals. All the evidence had done more to discredit Breckenridge than Madeline. The defense hadn't planned on such a strong presentation and stuck with the line they'd started with, that their client was the victim. At one point, they tried to shame Madeline with her behavior, calling her a fallen woman and a predator. Pale and worn from days on trial, she didn't back down. Yes, she told the courtroom, she had been involved with a married man and had had two children with him. The pregnancies weren't to trap him, as the defense had said, though. Breckenridge had insisted that she give up the children to stay with him. Madeline accepted that there were repercussions regarding her lack of morality, but she wasn't the only one without integrity. Breckenridge had misled her and should suffer consequences as well. She read out loud one of his very private and revealing letters to the jurors. In a last attempt to sway the court, Breckenridge took the stand, still insisting that he was the victim, a devoted family man until Madeline seduced him. What was he supposed to do? When he finished, Carlyle called three new witnesses to the stand a typist, the family cook, and a formerly enslaved woman. All admitted that they'd also had affairs with Breckenridge while he was married to his last wife. Members of the courtroom gasped. With that, the prosecution rested its case. The trial resumed on April 14th, and then the jury foreman read the verdict. Against all odds, Madeline had won. Madeline had done more than win the court case. She had cracked open a door to a new age for women, the demand to be treated equally on moral grounds. The suit shed light on double standards that are still being fought today. One question remained, though. Who financed her lawsuit? Her attorney was one of the most expensive around. Madeline couldn't afford him and had essentially been unhoused and without money when Breckenridge married Louise. At first, it might seem that Breckenridge's enemies might have opened their wallets, except they hadn't. Soon after the verdict, the Evening Star reported that a wealthy Kentucky widow related to one of the politician's former affair partners had paid for part of the expenses. But she wasn't the only wealthy widow. There were two more, one had provided $5,000. That's over $136,000 today. Then there was the daughter of a prominent New York businessman with a penchant for righting the wrongs toward ruined women. She and Madeline became lifelong friends and traveled the world together after the case. Also pitching in was Lucy Blout, a wealthy woman and activist for feminist ideals who had committed her time to women's rights. In the end, a group of women had banded together to defeat the men in the courtroom. They'd had enough of double standards. For most, it wasn't that they approved of Madeline's affair. She'd simply provided them the opportunity to make themselves heard. And if you're asking why the other women didn't just fund Madeline a new life, 
Then Carolyn Fellows Morgan, widow of J.P. Morgan, said it best. To paraphrase, any man claiming such morality and living a double life should not go unscathed. She'd been the one to fund the majority of the legal fees. The repercussions didn't stop there, though. When Breckenridge ran for re-election, he lost. And it may not have been the men who made sure his bid failed. Because although women didn't have the right to vote, they were able to do something else. They spoke up. And, thankfully, their sons and fathers and husbands did the right thing. They listened. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. It was a dream come true. Fresh out of high school in 1934, Olivia de Havilland landed her first acting job in a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Shortly afterward, Warner Brothers signed her with a five-year contract for $200 a week. Jack Warner's studio primarily produced gangster movies with male headliners like Edward Robinson and James Cagney at the time. Olivia expected her Shakespearean performance would land her serious film roles. What Warner Brothers gave her were arm candy roles for the leading men. Still, she accepted them in hopes that she might work her way up. She teamed up with Errol Flynn in Captain Blood, and the New York Times hailed her performance. The two shared dynamic on-screen chemistry that thrilled audiences. Flynn admitted to falling in love with Olivia, and she had also fallen for him. When he asked her out, though, she declined. You see, Flynn was married, and Olivia didn't date married men. Over the years, Flynn continued to pursue her, and she continued to turn down his advances. Olivia didn't wait for Flynn, either. She dated Jimmy Stewart, John Huston, and even Howard Hughes. But there was one other suitor she turned down, 
a naval lieutenant named John F. Kennedy. Yes, that JFK. Per their contracts with Warner, Olivia and Flynn were paired in six more films together. He was happy with the success and the wealth that these leading roles brought him. Olivia wanted respect as an actor and roles where she was more than just a pretty face with token lines. She appeared in the 1936 film Anthony Adverse, which earned six Academy Award nominations. That same year, she starred alongside Flynn for the box office hit The Charge of the Light Brigade. Despite newspapers and critics commending her performances, it was Flynn who benefited. Warner Brothers tore up his initial contract and gave him a better deal, $2,250 per week. Meanwhile, they agreed to raise Olivia's pay to a whole $500, if she changed her contract from five years to seven. Though she'd been successful in showcasing stronger acting skills when loaned out to other production companies, Warner Brothers continued to hand her stereotypical roles where she was expected to play clueless, inept characters. Still, people loved her. She portrayed a young woman who fell in love with the artist hired to paint her portrait in 1937's Call It A Day. And later, a comedy with Betty Davis earned her more acclaim. She teamed up with Flynn again for The Adventures of Robin Hood in 1938. The film went on to be one of Hollywood's biggest successes of its day and earned an Academy Award for Best Picture. While the film raised Flynn's status at Warner Brothers, lending him roles of his choosing, Olivia's roles remained the same, unchallenging ones. For her next two films, she was cast as ditzy rich girls. In the film that followed, her role as a love interest once more depressed her. Complaints to Jack Warner went unanswered. When MGM wrote a letter to Warner, asking them to loan out Olivia for an upcoming adaptation of a best-selling novel, they refused. Olivia had loved the novel and wanted a role in the project. Determined to land the role she wanted, she went to Jack Warner's wife. He relented. Oddly, Olivia didn't want the leading role MGM had her in mind for. She wanted the role of Melanie Hamilton. Scarlett O'Hara's kind-hearted and strong friend in Gone with the Wind. Critics sang her praises, calling her a standout among the star-studded cast. The role earned her an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. Even with the award, Warner Brothers continued to cast her in the same roles as before. The films were highly successful, catapulting her male counterparts into better and deeper roles while she remained typecast. She rejected several scripts, landing her suspensions from the movie studio. The only time Olivia played more difficult roles was when Warner loaned her out. In Paramount's risque 1941 hit, Hold Back the Dawn, she played a small-town teacher whose life and sexuality were awakened by a European gigolo. The role earned her another Academy Award nomination, this time for Best Actress. Olivia and Flynn paired up for two more movies. It became obvious to him that their eighth movie would be their last together. He later said that his last line to her had off-screen meaning. Walking through life with you, ma'am, has been a very gracious thing. In 1943, she'd fulfilled her seven-year contract with Warner Brothers. Except the studio tacked on six months for the times she'd declined movies and had been suspended. While other actors had accepted similar contract add-ons from the studio, Olivia hired an attorney. In 1943, California's Supreme Court sided with Olivia. 
Outraged, Warner Brothers filed an appeal. The studio's attorneys attempted to anger her in court, making her look like an overindulged and thankless star. As the saying went in Hollywood, men were bosses, women were bossy. Jack Warner seethed. We brought her from obscurity to prominence and can show that we made a profit on every picture she has ever been in. One of the studio attorneys did their best to intimidate her. Is it not true, Mr. Haviland, that you failed to show up on set to play roles requested of you? Always one to take the high ground, Olivia turned on the charm she was known for. I didn't refuse, she answered politely. I declined. Once more, the court sided with her, but it came with a cost. Warner Brothers blacklisted her from working in Hollywood and appealed to the California State Supreme Court. Olivia was just happy the trial was over. Little did she know she had changed Hollywood contracts forever. Co-star greats like Clark Gable and her former flame Jimmy Stewart used what became known as the de Havilland Rule to move forward with their own careers. Decades later, Johnny Carson, Courtney Love, and Jay Leno also used the ruling in similar situations. And Warner Brothers couldn't keep Olivia blacklisted for long. She worked with other studios, winning two more Oscars. In 1952, she left Hollywood, moving to Paris when she married Pierre Gallant. In 1989, she retired from acting. In 2003, she received a standing ovation as the presenter for the 75th Academy Awards. President George Bush awarded her with the National Medal of Arts in 2008. And in 2010, France appointed her a Knight of the Highest Decoration. Having walked through life with grace, Olivia de Havilland passed away peacefully in her sleep in her Paris home on July 26th of 2020. She was 104. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimAndMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.